Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Bletis. And I'm Jacob Schechtman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Hello everyone, today we are talking with Ingmar van Hengel. He is a PhD candidate at Delft University in Biomedical Engineering. He also has a mind for business when he created his first startup company called SkinPrint for the treatment of burn wounds, using bioprinting to develop skin using the patient cells and biocompatible natural polymer materials. He then shifted his focus to developing multifunctional 3D implants for orthopedic patients that are longer lasting and can combat bacterial infection. He has continued to grow his expertise in the digital health field and was a business analyst for Patch AI, which develops intelligent digital health engagement solutions for decentralized clinical studies. He is now working for Alira Health in gathering data and doing research that can contribute greatly to the overall health of the society. This is the first podcast interview that I've done, I'm doing now with the baby, so we'll see how oh, it goes. <laughs> I, hope, I hope everything is all right. Yeah, no, everything is fine. Um, I just want to know how's it going with you, though, like, just before we start, like, how are you doing? Doing good? Are you, like, very, very busy at the moment, or how? Yeah, is yeah, um, because I'm uh, at the same time basically doing two things, so you might have seen that uh, I now work for Alira Health, so that's basically a full-time job, and next to that I still have to wrap up my PhD. Um, oh, okay, right. Yeah. That's that, always that, tricky, balancing those two things out. Yeah. How long have you been working on your PhD? So my PhD in the Netherlands is uh, four years, and then uh, due to COVID I got three months extension, so then oh, pretty goodness. much the, the experimental part was done. Uh, but then I just needed to write the thesis, and um, yeah, I see. that takes a lot of time, especially yes, if you have to do does. it part-time. <laughs> and also yeah, having to focus on something else other than your actual thesis, yeah. it really extends yeah. that time a lot. Yeah. Now I remember those days, <laughs> I kind of went like, you kind of have, you gain it a bit of cabin fever if you don't get out yeah. and exercise and do other things than just sit and typing. Ugh. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> So you're going to continue working at um, the is it Alira Health, you said, right? Alira Health, yep. Okay, you're not going to do a post a postdoc or continue studying in other ways? Okay. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I just realized during my PhD that uh, although I really liked it, I also missed uh, a little bit the, um, how to say, the... That my research, although it was very applied, in the end wasn't really applied for people. That was something that I, I missed. See. And yeah. That's basically also why I got into uh, digital health. I mean, we can, uh, I would happy to, would be happy to elaborate a bit on that uh, because it doesn't seem, I think, a very logical choice if you go from, let's say, materials or biomechanical engineering to digital health. Yeah, but, that's But true. actually, the reason was that I. Um, I did a summer school where we sort of developed an application for patients and then I thought, oh, this is really okay. interesting. And that sort of triggered me to do the switch. And then I started working first for a startup, which then got acquired by, um, by Patch AI. Um, and yeah, for now, I, I really enjoy it because I just wanted to experience something outside of the, let's say, the research arena. Mm. Yeah. 
All right, so welcome, Ingwa van Hingel. I really enjoy having you on our podcast. Um, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, the things we're going to talk about today is going to be very, very interesting. Um, but firstly, before we start, I just want to know, how did you choose to study and work in the chemistry and polymer science field in the first place? Yeah, thanks a lot for the uh, for the invitation. And um, to answer your question, I actually sort of rolled into it because I first studied uh, biomedical sciences so that you could basically see as um, sort of learning similar things as a doctor but in the end not apply them on patients so not treating patients but doing research to to find out um, the, the mechanism behind certain diseases and it was actually during that time when I was doing my masters that um, I got interested also in um, in uh, business so there was a course called research-based business and uh, then we sort of looked into um, yeah, developments which were uh, interesting at the moment and one of them was 3d printing and so we sort of combined that with our background in biomedical sciences where um, yeah you could apply 3d printing to build tissue um, so uh, in the end to, to, for instance, make organs uh, using a 3D printer and that is called 3D bioprinting. And, and that's basically how I got involved in the, uh, in the chemical uh, and polymer field because uh, we decided to use this technique for uh, printing of skin tissue. And um, yeah, that's basically how in the end I ended up in the, in the chemical and polymer field. Yeah, now you mentioned now the skin printing and bioprinting and tissue engineering, all that very, very uh, key words that I find always triggers me, triggers my excitement for this field of um, polymer science. Um, but how did you, so you were working on wound healing treatments and then you have actually founded your own startup company, which you called SkinPrint, correct? Um, how did that like come about? And um, can you tell me a bit more about the company itself as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, this is already a couple of years ago because it was during my uh, my first master degree, uh, where we we just uh, happened to do uh, an evening course on research based business. So it was for life life science students who were interested in uh, not just learning about uh, doing research, but also maybe the idea of, of starting a company or at least learn a little bit about that. And it was actually there where we sort of combined our interest in 3D printing and um, trying to, to come up with solution to solve the donor shortage uh, for organs and sort of then things came together. Uh, so the initial idea actually was to, to make uh, 3D bioprinters, start selling 3D bioprinters. Um, but we very quickly realized that that was not really our expertise because uh, we were not engineers. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we were um, biomedical scientists, so we thought, okay, we actually know more about the product that's being produced. And at the time, it was also so new that that wasn't really being done. And um, yeah. yeah, actually, we just thought, okay, let's start simple with a type of organ which, which doesn't have a very difficult, let's say, 3D structure. And that happens mm. to be skin, because... Um, although the skin is a super interesting uh, tissue, um, if you look at it, it's, it's pretty two-dimensional. I mean, in the end, it's just a couple of layers on top of each other. 
And uh, we sort of built a business plan around that and uh, it got received very well. Uh, people really said, well, that's a great idea. I think you should continue with this. And that was actually the idea when we, we said, okay, let's, let's see if we can really start this company. So we, mm-hmm. uh, we worked on it for a little bit longer. We, um, we attended some uh, startup uh, competitions. So that was a very exciting time because we also realized that there was a big need actually for uh, skin tissue. For instance, yes. when you think of uh, burn victims, um, because they often lack enough um, skin to basically cover their burn wounds. Uh, and also the, the solution is never fully optimal because if someone has a burn wound, typically you still see that after, after surgery. Mm. I mean, you see that the, the skin there is different than on the other parts of the body. So uh, that just aroused a huge interest in, um, in our startup, basically. Um, however, at the end of the day, unfortunately, we, d- we did not succeed to secure funding um, because, yeah, looking back, we were just very inexperienced and um, also, at that moment, the environment where we were, it was simply not so easy to, uh, to to get so much funding because we would need several millions basically to, to start a lab. So what happened then was that um, during that time, I contacted a professor in uh, Switzerland, in Zurich, who, uh, who had his own lab, the, the Tissue Biology Research Unit. And they basically were working already for some time on, on more or less the similar process. So the idea was to engineer skin tissue for burned children. So they also had a close collaboration with um, with the children's hospital. And uh, that's in the end where, I, where sort of I did my, uh, my research on this topic. So using a 3D bioprinter to, uh, to print uh, actual skin tissue in the lab and then also do some preclinical experiments to to validate the the functionality of the skin tissue. So, um, did you is the skin print now that that company is it still continuing or is it taken over by someone or how is that going? Yeah, so the the initial company as we had it in mind in the end didn't really take off because we we were not able to to secure funding. Um, yes, the that, funding that ma- was there. Yeah, that might also have been due, like I said, at that moment uh, where we were in the Netherlands, there wasn't really this startup culture, so it was difficult to, to get funding anyway, and then we were also very mm. young, so maybe that also played a role. So, um, yeah, at the end of the day, we uh, we, we said, okay, uh, unfortunately, this is not a, a real company with which we can continue. Not a viable option. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so it but was interesting it's... because... Actually, we, we learned a lot during that, uh, that time. It was super, yeah, uh, super interesting. Yeah, and I think that the research that you... Yeah, and I think that the research that you brought into the, um, the whole strategy of starting that company and collaborating with hospitals, that's still... I mean, that's great ideas that can be taken by other companies or just initiatives that can be utilized for future reference. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. And, and uh, if, if I just may add one thing, because you asked about the company. Um, so in the end, I, I, I moved to uh, Switzerland for a couple of months to do research there. And uh, yeah, that, that's also what in the end laid the foundation for the, the, the research that we recently published. 
Um, but there they sort of uh, had all the, the facilities to, to actually make this uh, skin engineering come true. Um, so in the end, they actually started a company a couple of years later, which is called Qtis. Uh, it's okay. still based in, uh, in Switzerland. And um, yeah, I think they, they're doing very well. So they, they even won um, a startup competition in, in Switzerland and are now doing phase two clinical trials. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's really, Wonderful. it's really moving forward. So I'm quite positive that um, maybe in a few years this will this will actually be um, actually be possible to use this technique in clinical practice and and not just in Switzerland but also in other countries. Yeah, it would be so great. I mean, yo. Um, just one more question regarding the skin print. Uh, what polymers did you use uh, during that research? Well, actually, um, at the end, it was pretty simple because we used natural uh, components, natural polymers. Um, because what we tried to do is we tried to mimic the, the skin as, as good as possible in the lab. Mm. And uh, basically, the first step is to simply use what, what is also present in our skin, which is based mainly collagen. Um, yes. And uh, it turns out that uh, that you can actually do that. So how we used that in our bioprinting process was that uh, we sort of had a, uh, a piston which had like um, two um, reservoirs, let's say. And one reservoir was filled with, with the cells that make up the skin. So uh, you have, let's say, the skin cells. Then you, we also started to add pigment. So we also added the melanocytes. Um, and and the neutralization buffer, and then in the other reservoir there would be collagen, and then uh, if you would mix them, that would make the uh, collagen solidify, so you would get an actual hydrogel. Um, however, if you just put that together, then you you end up with something that's uh, uh, in our case was about a centimeter thick. Um, but it was very unstable. I mean, it would just fall apart if you would touch it. And that's where the, the second step of the process comes into play, which is called plastic compression. Um, so basically, it's simply pushing, uh, pushing a squared stone, if you will, onto this uh, printed construct, which contains a lot of water, actually. So what we do is by pressing onto this construct, we press out the water and we end up with something that's about a millimeter thick and it's much stronger. So it's something that you can actually lift. Uh, so it would also mean that the surgeon could lift it and transplant it onto the patient. So that's a pretty crucial step um, because without this step, you would just have something which is not mechanically stable and not useful at all. But simply by, uh, in the end, squeezing out the water, you, you end up with something that's much stronger. And uh, it's also a nice approach because you don't add any chemicals or something which might disturb the uh, regeneration process. Yes, yeah, that sounds wonderful because, yeah, it, like you said, it's more biocompatible bio and even like getting that moisture out, I think will be beneficial because you don't want to introduce or have the option of bacterial growth and things like that on the wound. And I think, yeah, excess moisture on a, on a, a burned wound is not that great as far as my knowledge goes. <laughs>
No, you're definitely right. And, and it, yeah, it's, it's definitely important to prevent infections. And that's also not only after transplantation, but also when you're uh, growing these uh, tissue engineered constructs in the lab. It's very important to work in a sterile environment. And uh, the thing is that the bigger these pieces get, the more difficult this becomes. I mean, it's just more likely that somehow a bacteria or fungus will drop in and start an infection. And, and actually in the lab there in, in Zurich, they, they had developed a very nice um, culture construct. Uh, you can also find it in the, in the publication where we were able to um, add different types of medium. So you can see that as nutrition for the cells. Um, because in the end, we would print two layers of skin. So you have the top layer, which is the epidermis. Uh, which is the layer that, that you see uh, that contains the pigment and then secures the, the barrier function. And then below that you have the dermis which has the, the blood supply, the innervation with the nerves uh, and basically gives the stability to the skin. Um, but the challenges of, of growing such a construct uh, in vitro, so in the lab, is that you have different types of cells and they, so to say, they like different types of food. And so they, they made a, a construct which allowed it to, on the one hand, on the top of the construct at uh, medium type A and at the bottom at uh, medium type B. And because of that, um, both uh, parts of the skin tissue, let's say, were happy and were, were growing very well. So Yeah, just in terms of uh, the wound healing treatments that you are doing or that you did with the, um, that uh, skin print, how does that compare to common approaches with wound healing treatments that were most classically used? Yeah, I, I think the, the main difference is the end result. So if you look at other products which, which try to aim, uh, which aim at the same thing, so reconstructing the patient's skin, um, the, the difference is simply that we really construct reconstruct the skin of the patient. So the process actually starts with taking a small biopsy uh, from which we then isolate the different type of, of skin cells which we then put together with 3D printing and then we grow the skin back in the lab and we transplant it back onto the patient. Um, the thing is that this takes time. So this takes, uh, uh, depending a little bit whether you want to include blood and lymphatic vessels as well for instance, it, it takes between three and five weeks. So that, that still means that, okay. let's say you would have a burn victim, you would have to use temporarily wound dressings, which they also use now um, in the clinic, uh, to cover this first three weeks. But then after that, you would basically transplant the skin back onto the patient. And we see from the first clinical trial results that, um, yeah, these the end result in the end is much better and, and that is simply because we transplant the entire skin. So not just the top layer, but also the layer below. And what is done currently is that um, they, they sort of scrape off a piece of healthy skin from a part of the body of the patient that's not yeah, burned. Like I mean, you, it from... Yeah, exactly. So it's an autograph. So you can imagine that's already not so pleasant, uh, but it also means that yes. you only transplant the top layer of the skin. And when you do that, um, it means that you will eventually cover the burn wound, 
but because you lack the underlying layer, um, the skin will in the end uh, yeah, become scar tissue. And that means it's simply yes, yeah. not elastic, uh, which, which is not just, uh, I mean, aesthetically it doesn't look good, but it also might impair movement of the patient. So let's say you would be burned around your elbow. Um, often with this autografted skin, uh, you would see that uh, patients would have um, difficulties moving their elbow simply because the, the skin is too stiff. And when you think about burnt, burnt children, um, there's another problem because the skin doesn't grow along with the patient. So the, because children grow, they literally grow out of their own skin. And so it means that they would have to go back to, to surgery every, uh, every few years um, because they sort of grow out of their sure. skin tissue. So the idea is by, by sort of giving back the actual uh, skin to the patient, like the complete skin, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that would really take and this skin would regenerate by itself and hopefully you can reduce the number of uh, surgeries in the future. I mean, this is something that we hypothesize and, and that will have to be shown in clinical trials. Um, but uh, like I said, the, the first results are quite promising. So Okay, sure. Um, just to move on to the next uh, part of your studies and research, um, uh, you have uh, moved your focus a bit more to 3D printing implants and digital health. So uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that and uh, what is the meaning of digital health and what does it do and how does it work? Yeah, yeah, indeed, uh, definitely. So actually, the when I was working on SkinPrint, that really triggered my interest in uh, in the use of technology to solve medical problems and more specifically to use 3D printing to, to make things which in the end help patients. So, of course, uh, skin printing was a great uh, example. Um, but then I realized I needed more knowledge on the technology. Uh, and so I actually moved to a uh, technical university where I did another master in bio- biomedical engineering. And then uh, my graduation project there was to uh, make uh, 3D printed implants, uh, orthopedic implants, so in this case made of titanium, which could, for instance, replace uh, a hip joint or, uh, or a knee joint, um, so very frequently used. Um, and the idea was to make implants which had sort of a, a surface treatment, uh, which caused them to prevent infections. And actually, that was such an interesting project that I decided to make my PhD um, out of that. Um, luckily, my uh, supervisors managed to secure some funding. And then uh, I did my PhD basically on 3D printed implants, which were designed to prevent uh, infections. Um, I would actually like to hear more about that, about your PhD study, uh, especially about sure. the implants and so on, and how that worked with the preventing the infections and so on. Um, can you tell me a bit more about your PhD while we're on the topic? Yeah, definitely. So maybe to start off with uh, with the implants itself. So uh, I guess that almost everyone nowadays knows someone who received a hip or knee um, implant. So they're very frequently mm-hmm. used. And, and I mean, it, it's a great medical invention because it gives people back their mobility. Um, so it's really incredible. I mean, people just have a lot of pain 
sometimes can uh, walk normally again within just a couple of weeks. It's really amazing if you think about it. However, uh, of course, everything can, can be improved. And um, the thing is that because we have an aging population, so people luckily get older and older, um, we see that patients start to outlive their implants. So typically a hip or knee implant is designed to last, let's say, 25 years. And, and that used to be enough because people would simply not frequently get over, <laughs> let's say, 90. But now that that's yeah, more true. and more the case, we would actually like to give patients something with which we know for sure that they will last a lifetime. So to do that, mm. you need to um, sort of optimize the implant from a mechanical standpoint, because it's been shown that if you design the implant in a certain way, you will actually stimulate the surrounding bone tissue to regenerate, and that will improve the longevity of the implant. And that's where 3D printing comes into play, because 3D printing allows us to basically create any design that we come up with. So we can basically look at the anatomy of the patient, do some mechanical analysis and come up with sort of the ideal implant and then actually print that implant. Um, so so that's, a, that's a small part of it. Um, and then I was focused mainly on complications that arise after implanting such a hip or, uh, or a knee implant. Uh, although the majority works very well, uh, sometimes uh, patients unfortunately develop infections. Um, okay. And though that's a very small percentage because the, the number of people that receive such an implant is so big, in the end also quite, quite a large number of patients in the end develop infections. And when left untreated, uh, this can have severe side effects. I mean, patients can lose their mobility again or uh, really the worst outcome is, is um, systemic infection, uh, which might cause a lot of problems. So to prevent that, yeah, the idea sure. is actually to add something to the implant surface, which sort of, especially in the initial stage after implantation, basically kills any bacteria that tries to approach the surface of these implants. So we had a, a surface um, treatment that we developed where we applied, uh, for instance, silver nanoparticles onto the surface of these 3D printed implants and thereby create so-called self-defending implants which would then uh, prevent infection. And we have tested these implants in uh, preclinical models where we sort of mimicked uh, infection that would also occur in patients. And um, the results were, were quite promising. Um, so um, hopefully this will be uh, continued further. And uh, yeah, once again, in a couple of years, we can really have implants that would reduce the number of infections. Uh, I don't think we'll be able to completely eradicate mm -hmm. all infections, but at least significantly uh, reduce the number and so that patients can really enjoy yeah. these implants uh, for their entire life, basically. No, that's true. Like, as long as you can just minimize that risk and, um, like, obviously, the bacteria and, and all that always develops and evolves and tries to become some sort of superbug at the end. But, I mean, if you can minimize the risks and minimize the infections, like, that's wonderful. Because you mentioned um, resistance. That's, that's actually one of the reasons why we started this research is because, unfortunately, mm. a lot of the bacteria that cause these infections are becoming resistant to antibiotics. Amarase is a is one of the main 
pathogens that is involved in these uh, infections. And so it becomes more difficult to treat these infections. And, th and that's why we started to use other uh, tools like silver nanoparticles. Um, but it's always a, a balance because in the end, um, bacteria tend to, to become resistant to whatever you give them. So it's always just um, a matter of time before we have to invent something new. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. Like the constant development of technology, it's always a requirement. <laughs> we can't be stagnant. We have to like that's why research yeah. is so important and the continuous building on each other's research and sharing the information and yeah, that's very, very cool. <laughs> so just my one question for digital health. Um can you tell me a bit more about the digital health and how it works and uh, just go a little bit more in depth about um, that concept, because it's very unfamiliar to me. I've not heard of the, the word digital health before. Um, yeah, interesting question, because really digital health can mean so many things uh, nowadays. Um, maybe I can explain it best by uh, explaining in the end how I ended up in digital health, because I did pretty different things and uh, might not be a logical step from, let's say, biomechanics uh, to digital health because it was actually during my PhD that I did a uh, summer school um, which took place in a clinic just outside uh, Berlin um, where we were asked to develop a uh, prototype of a, of a platform where patients and doctors could interact and they could, um, they could talk with each other, they could uh, share certain files um, and that was really interesting because actually the first three days we spent on investigating how the procedures worked in that hospital. Um, and we were working mainly for the psychiatric uh, department and uh, we really went from attending patient interviews, uh, talking with uh, physicians to in the end really developing something that had an immediate impact on patients. Um, because even though it was just two weeks, so we just developed a very rough prototype, the people there, they were so excited because they said, this is something that we've been waiting for for years. We've been using all kinds of software solutions, but they're just way too complex and they don't give us what we need. And you just gave us that. And that made such a huge impact on me that I thought, whoa, this is really amazing because you can actually do something which immediately helps patients. So that triggered my interest in, in digital health. And then when I finished my PhD, I was interested to work for a startup. And in the end, uh, I was fortunate enough to actually find a startup which worked on sort of a similar thing. It was called Patch AI. So they developed um, applications for patients that uh, participate either in clinical trials or uh, in standard care programs. And so it gives patients a little bit more uh, control, let's say, and also insight into their, their treatment. And then at the end, this uh, startup was uh, acquired last year by Alira Health, which is a, let's say, full spectrum service provider for startups and, and bigger companies uh, throughout their life cycle drug development. So that's what I'm currently working on, working on um, getting more and more of these digital health applications to, uh, to patients. Um, because I was thinking about people like my father, maybe that has like a handful of pills to take every day and how you can just get confused and 
um, forget because if you're the person that needs to take the pills, obviously you yourself aren't well, so you won't remember to take them or how many or which ones and so on and so on. So is that like also how the digital health can be useful, right? Like how you can make that work for you as a patient, as a person. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things that that will also, in, in the end, help the development of new therapies as well. Because right now we don't really have an insight into whether patients really strictly adhere to their treatment uh, schedules. Mm. Uh, because if you don't know if a patient is taking medication, then how can you judge whether that medication actually has an exactly. effect on their on yeah. their condition? And that is something that we'll see more and more. And another interesting development, uh, sort of tying into this, is called real world evidence. So it simply means that. You, you follow people that are, maybe follow is not the right word, you, you give people the opportunity to participate in such a program mm. uh, where they are on certain, uh, using a certain treatment. You ask them simply for feedback um, and you can combine that with a wearable like a smartwatch for instance if it mm. might be beneficial to measure things like blood pressure, um, oxygenation of the blood or, or whatever. And then you can combine that data to actually, in the end, come up with a better treatment plan for individual patients. That's I mean, we're, we're still not there yet. Uh, that's still, I think, a long way to go. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but I think it's a, it's a necessary progression into the future because um, with all the variables and the different type of people and genetics that comes into play, you know, you can't really these days say, yeah, taking that pill will give you this results or taking that pill will give you this side effects because there's so many different types of people, different types of ailments and underlying you know, things that can you know, give you false inf- impressions and false data. So that's really, really important to keep growing in that direction with this technology. Uh, because actually the the interesting thing is that the challenge is nowadays maybe not so much into collecting these data. Oh, yes. I mean, that's possible, but sort of getting data that is uh, of, let's say, high enough quality to be actually be useful because there's usually yeah. a lot of noise or you're not exactly able to measure what you would like to measure, so you deduct it from a variable that you can measure. And these... Uh, these kind of things really pose huge challenges when it comes to the usability of this data. And it's something that you need to think about beforehand uh, because if you don't sort of design your uh, data collection well, you will end up with data that in the end doesn't allow you to answer your research question. Oh, yeah. that, is, that is basically in a nutshell the big challenge of digital health nowadays. It does a great summarization of it, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that we should know about digital health if we want to, you know, learn more about it or go uh, find out more about it ourselves? Where should we go and look? Well, you can, uh, of course, maybe take a look on the website of Alira Health. There you will find some of the the in-house application that we uh, are currently developing. yeah, the thing is that digital health, it really means uh, going from, let's say, analyzing MRI data to, to making applications for patients to, to help them manage their condition. Then the next uh, thing is digital therapeutics. So it's actually that the, the digital component is the treatment itself, or at least 
a large part of the treatment. Uh, th that will be something very interesting, especially for mental health. Um, and, and that is something that we just are seeing uh, starting to emerge. So there are definitely so many components of digital health that um, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to say <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, in one word what, what will be the, the main development. Uh, yeah, it will just become a, a bigger and bigger component yeah. of healthcare in general. And it is like it is a volunteering type of system. So people, patients have to be able to volunteer their their data to you know develop this digital health system. But um, so there's no risk of being um, you know exposed or you know getting your data leaked or anything like that because I'm, I'm certain that that security will grow as well as technology grows, obviously. <laughs> I th indeed. So, in order for digital health to work, you will, you would need to have trust and also transparency. Uh, I think if you lack both, then in the end, uh, patients will just not use yeah. your uh, your application. That. Yeah, that's and, true. And, and that's something that digital health developers owe to their uh, end users. In this case, patients or uh, physicians as well. Um, and uh, so th that's something that we as a digital health community definitely need to work on and i think it starts with transparency because if you're not transparent and, and the patient doesn't understand what you're doing with this data and how it's being processed uh, then you will never be able to gain the trust of the, of the patient so there's yeah. also a huge challenge when it comes to um, digital health literacy making people really understand uh, how digital health solutions might benefit their condition um, and these things take time and need mm. to be done well. So. Yeah, it needs to be done properly so people will not lose trust in the system as well. Yeah, that's true. A very good way of, of ending the podcast, but I just wanted to, before we end, just ask, is there any future plans, any hopes for your research that you're building on or that you, that you hope for your development in the future? Um, yeah, so so like I already mentioned, I'm quite positive about the uh, the future of skin engineering. I think it it will really be one of the first tissues that we'll be able to actually manufacture in the lab and use in uh, in transplantation. So uh, yeah, I'm quite positive about that. When it comes to 3D printed uh, implants. I'm also quite positive about that. Uh, there are some challenges when it comes to the manufacturing uh, process uh, because unfortunately 3D printing is still relatively slow and because there's such a huge volume of implants needed, um, I think we still need a um, fabrication method which sort of combines the two. So it allows for the, mm. the free-form fabrication of 3D printing, but at the same time also has the uh, speed of conventional techniques. And when we will be able to um, um, overcome these challenges, then uh, we, we really can start thinking about making customized implants the, the standard of care. And then hopefully also awesome. combine that with uh, with the service treatment method that we use to um, sort of reduce the number of infections. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, you sent me some links uh, for skin print and your publications and so on. So I'll post that all on the show notes of the 
of this episode. Uh, so people can go and check that out. And um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And talking to me about your work and all the interesting stuff about tissue engineering and bioprinting. Um, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy that as well.